Central exchange what of keys today. So, what we do today. So today we will be talking to the lovely Ming Lauren Holden, mm-hmm. who has written a book. She has written a book called Refuge. It's about her experience, a memoir, all about her experiences uh, creating theater in the third world and traveling throughout countries that are in cultural strife and talking to the people there and really like creating relationships with them and she's written this this beautiful memoir that we're going to be speaking with her about and talking about the uh um you know the intersection between culture and theater and and all of that and it's uh it's gonna be great can't wait all right it's gonna be fun yeah let's do it Hello, and welcome back. We are here with Ming Holden. Would you like us to refer to you as Ming Lauren Holden or Ming Holden? Just Ming is fine. Excellent. We're here with Ming, who is a local artist, writer, actress. She kind of does it all. She's in the PhD program at UCSB, and her new book, which is coming out this summer is called Refuge, and we're going to be talking with her about that. One of the fascinating things, just as a, a little side note, is that Ming grew up in the area, in Los Alamos, on a zebra ranch. <laughs> and what I've learned about zebras is that they're just there to be beautiful. They don't actually really serve any purpose. They can't physiologically hold weight, which is kind of how I feel sometimes mm-hmm. when I'm hiking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just I feel like a zebra. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. So uh, (laughs) I cannot. So what I uh, would love to do is first ask you, what do you do with the zebras? And then we will talk about Refuge, your your lovely memoir. So we look at the zebras and occasionally, um, if it's the 90s, we sell them to Michael Jackson. And I I never got to meet Michael Jackson, but (laughs) he did send his handlers, no jokes, please, um, (laughs) and his chimp, uh, Bubbles. He sent sent Bubbles? We got to meet Bubbles at the ranch. And he he grabbed he knew how to shake hands you know so we would put our hands out and I just remember that it was he had very tough fingers and, and squeezed real hard. Wow! And I was, wonder you know, I like where he learned that. Maggie, stop. In any case, yeah, <laughs> zebras did physiologically evolve such that they cannot bear cargo. So when you're on your hike with your sweetie and you want him to carry all the stuff, you just have to say, "Baby, I'm just like a zebra. <laughs> my belly is too rotund, my legs are too spindly, and my spine is too sunken to bear any cargo. And you need to take all the gorp." Right, you know, and you need to and carry the, the gorp. <laughs> That's the such a fantastically Santa Barbara experience. Camel pack. Right. Yeah, nobody's having that experience at Lucidity right now. No one. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you guys read Into Thin Air? Which yeah, I a bought long it time and ago. Well, you know, the no. Santa Barbara character in that, the woman who comes from Santa oh, Barbara, right. she's like the one who's the diva in camp. She's of the course. zebra on the expedition. She's like, oh my God, can I use your oxygen? <laughs> I just can't anymore. Oh, I just God. need more I oxygen just, than a I normal person. I can't do it. That is so from Santa Barbara. Sea level. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I think, oh I think she thought it was slander, but I don't know. I'm so. trying to figure out the most Santa Barbara thing to do to just make it clear on the front end that oh. you are from Santa Barbara without people needing to ask. And I realized that you mm. need to become a yoga teacher. Yes, true. And you need to employ uh, yes. immense amounts of vocal fry at the uh, top of class well, yeah. when you are saying, uh, let's everybody set an intention for your class and for the kind of experience that you want to have while you're in class. <laughs> I think you nailed it just now. Just I think that, that was it. Your daughter is from Santa Barbara. I know, she right? Is. As am I. That's you know? your and fault. You brought her up teaches, here. And she mm. teaches yoga <laughs> vocal fry so sorry i don't think there's another way to teach yoga uh, i don't i don't I know don't trust yoga i don't if you were to tell me if you were to say to me do a downward dog i'd be like i don't know what that is oh you meant a downward dog you're like i'm married i do that with my husband okay <laughs> nobody outside my marriage gets to ask me that <laughs> let's be real anybody outside my marriage gonna ask me that <laughs> <laughs> right let's define marriage yeah let's you know. define it as a non-yoga based activity <laughs> Well, you is there a Barbara polyamorous life. community yet? I know Seattle is. I think it's creeping down the West Coast. I kind of yeah. like. I think that 
Portland is now that Portlandia is out there is, is halfway there. You know, I think it's I, spreading yeah. south. I'm waiting for the infographic on this. So when that comes, okay, send it to yes, me. Yes, we will send it to you. I'll just like text it to you or something. Yeah. You know, whatever. Tweet me. The That's link. scary. I didn't know how good Maggie was at vocal fry until oh, yeah. just now. Girl, I'm literally from this place. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I also yeah. hang out with drag queens. And so let's set an intention for our podcast let's and send an out our thoughts and, and our love and mm-hmm. our, our third chakra energy to somebody who is in need. Third eye to center. Or like Here we go. an endangered animal or something. So you are you clearly nailed it at the Santa Barbara thing. That's clear. That's clear. That's clear. She's got us. But one kind. of the things that I really learned about you from your book Refuge which again is coming out in June, so look for June it. June 25th, Corey Breath. Excellent. Mm. Is that you have been all over the world. And not only have you done the sort of traveling that I think a lot of college kids do where they like, they backpack through Europe or like maybe they go to Argentina or whatever. Like you have gone to some of the gnarliest places in the world and done humanitarian work and talked to people and really had real conversations with people about about a life that is so completely different than what we know here, where we go to vocal fry yoga. I mean, these are people who are, you know, they're, they are leaving their countries because their countries are in strife and civil war, or they are, you know, in, in these survivor colonies because they were, you know, abused children in Africa and, and all these different places. So I would love to hear just basically where you, how you got from Los Alamos to the wide world of Syria, Africa, Mongolia, all of these places. Like, give me, like, just a little brief history of Ming. Okay. Ming grew up on a zebra farm. She's also going to stop talking in the third person right now. (laughs) (laughs) I went to Midland, um, which is a tiny independent um, boarding school Mm -hmm. outside of Los Alamos, um, technically outside of Los Olivos, right across the street from Michael Jackson's ranch. God, you are. In spite of the fact I didn't meet him, I got to go to Neverland Mm. and like chaperone or something for when for when the school children would be bussed in. No jokes. Oh my god, I would just give out the free candy. So many jokes. Yeah, and there was a big like banana yellow um, anaconda kind of big snake that that was part of the petting zoo. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. The jokes just write themselves. I know. (laughs) Anyway, I I went to the sorts of schools. you know, across from Midland um, is, is I don't know what it's called, Neverland. And then across from that uh, on Midland's property is the family school. And my mother was a teacher there. Mm. Okay. So my parents um, made a really extraordinary decision, which was just to put my education at the top of like the budget. Mm-hmm. And they did that for all three of the kids. And they made sure that the education came first. And that didn't mean no public school, but it meant that if we couldn't find our, our footing there, that they would do their best to help us get to a place that felt nurturing. And uh, for for my older brother, Mark, and me, that that place was Midland. Okay. Um, I was pretty, actually really shy and really awkward, and I don't think anybody expected me to go do these things. Mm-hmm. I think they expected that I would go be an English major at a college and then maybe go teach English, um, probably at a high school somewhere in America. It was not, like, written on my forehead that I was this, an intrepid, like, world wanderer. Um, that's interesting because I look at you now and uh it it doesn't surprise me you know what I mean like you have a very no you have a very sort of like worldly aura about you I think you know just I don't know it's the what do you call this pashmina it's the pashmina this this is actually from Stockholm it's always when I was like going to talk to the Syrian refugees it was really cheap and I like the color um anyway everybody go to Stockholm by the way I think that there were a lot of compassionate wonderful people in my childhood okay I think I got the real the, the real creme de la creme, the best of the best in terms of mentors and people who spent a lot of time. Shout out to Ian and Linda Cummings specifically, who still mm. teach at Midland, who still mm. do drama there, who still mm. do history and English there and college admissions there. Um, I think I spent possibly half of my nights of school in high school, not out, you know, on, on dates with guys at the drive-in or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It was only <laughs> the 90s, but still. <laughs> um but on their living room floor, you know, like crying and eating their cookies and feeling angsty. And they listened to me and they sat with me on their living room floor. So did Sean and Laura McVicker. You know, the mongers are really great. Mm-hmm. And I think that being listened to and treated like a person who had something to say and treated like my feelings were valid 
actually did do something for me. It did bring me out of my shell somewhat. Mm -hmm. And it led me to realize that if I needed that so badly, there were a lot of people who Mm. needed it more. Mm -hmm. And that the arts were a really fantastic way of bridging that divide between people who had been listened to and had been fortunate and people they knew deserved that, but who hadn't gotten that. So I'm pretty sure that that's how it started. I went down to Ecuador after my junior year of high school Mm -hmm. and my host mother, and this is just like one of those weird coincidences, was the um, family planning director. Like, Like there was a huge family planning organization, 25 different offices at the time. This was in 2001. I think it's even bigger now. It's called Semoplaf. Mm-hmm. And she just took me to work every day once I told her that I wanted to know how people, how most people in Ecuador lived. And she just said simply, like, you're coming to work with me then. Mm. So I would come with her to work and she would drop me off with the doctors who did the consultations. And I would get to watch women who were just a couple of years older than me. I was 16 at the time. And they would be in there with black eyes and with tears running down their faces. And they wouldn't know how to navigate the fact that they weren't ready to have more children, but their husbands would do them harm if they knew that that their wives had been asking about contraception, like that kind of thing. Oh, wow. And once you go back to little old Midland and Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. after that kind of experience, you, you just sort of start to think that it's a civil duty yeah. um, to start listening and spreading the, the spotlight on people who are not used to being seen or heard. And hmm. n- nobody that I know does it perfectly, but we can all keep trying. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a, diff- it's a difficult thing to do, to really listen in the way that that someone needs to be listened to. I mean, it's everybody's different. And unless you have like, (laughs) you know, unless you can read people's minds, it's impossible to know. Like, but, but this book really tells an interesting story about you and about the work that you've done in that region, uh, just in terms of, of getting to know people and learning their story. And now did you do all of this travel with a book in mind or did you, do all of these interviews with something else in mind, and then you collected it into the book? Well, I've been into creative writing since I was in high school before I knew, you know, before I went to Ecuador, right? Mm-hmm. So that's always been in there as, well, I, I'm not a, an amazing filmmaker. I'm, I'm not, I initially didn't think of myself as a performer or an actor. I got to that in, in the second half of my 20s. So this one thing that I could do that was a pretty portable skill was to take my journal and my pen or pencil wherever I was and jot down what I observed. And that felt like my offering. You have to identify what your skill set is and you have to identify what your value set is. And then you can go into whichever context near or far from the place that is familiar with you or familiar to you as home. And then you can offer what you have to offer, you know, and and when I was a teenager and uh, in my early 20s, especially, I didn't know that I had other things to offer. So that's always what I would do is try to write a creative piece about what I was seeing and experiencing because it was the only thing I really knew how to do. I wasn't a doctor. I couldn't do what Louis Netzer's Rio Bene Foundation could do down in Bolivia, but mm-hmm. I could write about the doctors doing what they were doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was the logic there. And okay. then and then, when did it turn toward memoir? And I never turned into a full-fledged journalist. I think that was it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it kept being kind of like poetic and... Um, mm-hmm. And I ran across John Degada um, when he had just come out with Halls of Fame out of Grey Wolf Press and also an anthology called The Next American Essay that sort of championed the form of the lyric essay as this new innovative form where you could really do a lot with spaces and do a lot of things that usually were relegated to prose poetry Mm. um, and instead mix it with research, mix it with memoir and create a new essay form. And I was 16 or 17 when I picked up that book, The Next American Essay. And I remember that I took it to Russia, which was one of my my first two or three stints living and working abroad. And I was working for a sustainable forestry foundation and reading these, these very inspiring essays. And I didn't know a word of Russian. You know, mm. it was a, It was a very kind of insulated experience in a subjective way. And I had a place to put all those impressions, and I had I had a way to express what was happening inside, and it was through this mode of creative writing. I didn't feel like I had to make it a poem, and I didn't feel like I had to first go to you know the Columbia University School of Journalism. I could do it this way. Somebody had just worked really hard so that all of us could feel like we could do it this way. Mm-hmm. And that was John Degatta. He really worked hard at the end of the 90s, at the beginning of the aughts, to create the lyric essay as a form. 
and and not created, but point out that we've always been writing this way. Hmm. And that was phenomenally, you know, influential um, in, in, in my career, because I don't think with, without his work, I don't know if I would have found a way to describe humanitarian work yeah. in a way other than straight up journalism, because mm-hmm. that wasn't how I was feeling and thinking and doing things. Mm-hmm. But this this form let me do the things the Ming way, you know? Right. Sure. So I owe a lot to his work, for sure. Well, the first, and this was something I found fascinating when I when I read this, the first line of this book, when you open it up, yeah, is, I am accustomed now to being in a room with seven men who are drawing my pubic hair. And after reading that, I just sort of looked up and I thought to myself, what kind of a book is this? And But I mean, it's great. It's a great opening line because you're like, where is this going? What is going to happen? And what I've, what I found through reading this is that that is very sort of expressive of this is a book in which you get to know the realness of people in their most sort of vulnerable place. And so by starting it out is being like, look, right now, this is what you're going to get. You're getting a book about essentially me drawing people's pubic hair. Like I'm, I'm learning about their sensitive, <laughs> you know, vulnerable places and, and I'm writing about it and I'm creating this, this piece that is, is based on that. And, uh, that's, that's one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed about this was getting to know, not just getting to read about people who, you know, this is a Syrian refugee. This is somebody who now lives in Europe. They used to live somewhere else. This is somebody who is a survivor. It's about getting to know the real people behind all of these stories. And what I really want to talk about is your work with uh, the Survivor Girls. And I know that that did not quite make it into the final cut, but I think that it's such an interesting... Well, it did. Jacqueline and the Negative Imagination. That's right. Jacqueline the Imagination. Yeah. My earlier writing about the work wasn't as academic and it also wasn't as lyrical. I felt like I couldn't get academic mm-hmm. about it and I couldn't get lyrical about it because that would cross some some ethical lines. Gotcha. Um, and then I kind of got comfortable with the fact that that the girls themselves with whom I am still in contact, mm-hmm. you know, who have seen the essays, who've, who've read the work, um, or at least been given the opportunity to, mm-hmm. have said, no, we, you were in the room with us. We trust you. We, we want you to tell this story the way that you tell it. And that, that permission really meant the world. So start and start at the beginning and, and tell us about that experience and what you did and the work that you did. Sure. Um, Michael Littig is a theater artist out of New York City. He, I met him in 2007 in Mongolia when I was a loose scholar there working, um, doing some of my first work with refugees through PEN America's Freedom to Write program. I met a couple of refugees who um, came from the Tibetan region of China or from the, the Inner Mongolian region of China. Outer Mongolia is the sovereign state of Mongolia, right? And so I was there. Uh, but I had the chance to work with and advocate at the local UN branch for these ethnic Mongolians from Inner Mongolia, which is a state in China who had fled. Hmm. And that's, I was 23, and that's what got me started in refugee advocacy, working with these people, and realizing that if I was in the room saying, you know, I'm I'm here on behalf of PEN America, even though I didn't work for PEN America, I was in contact with the people who worked there, and they wanted me to be saying that stuff. They wanted me to be kind of leaning into it a little bit. And, and Why weren't they the paying elbow. you if you were giving them a shout out? Well, the Henry Luce scholars are paid by the Henry Luce Foundation, okay. and so technically I already had a stipend, and gotcha. I was there to ad hocishly work for <laughs> <laughs> NGOs on the ground. Um, the Asia Foundation would help us out, and technically I was the international relations advisor for the Mongolian Writers Union. Hmm. Anyway, um, so Mongolia's ex right? That's a line on the CV. That's a bullet <laughs> point right there. <laughs> but um, you know, Mongolians, uh, Mongolia's rather expat scene is really small. So most of us who were there through the winter have met each other mm. who are from, from elsewhere um, and gotten together and, and, you know, sang silly songs and done karaoke and had lots of heavy mutton food. And one of the friends I made, uh, there were lots of Peace Corps kids that I met and some Fulbright kids. And Michael was one of the Fulbright kids. And so we connected and he was a theater, theater artist. And at the time, I didn't identify as one. I thought mm-hmm. I was just a creative writer. Mm-hmm. I had always wanted to be in plays, but mm-hmm. I was really shy and really scared to fully be present in my body 
And that's what theater artists needed to know how to do. And I thought that that disqualified me. Maggie and I aren't good at that part. We have, we really have a problem. That's we identify with that yeah, as a yeah. No, I I really I really I don't do. know. I, I kind of want to see. I, I want to see what you would use as proof of that. Well, see, this we're, is what people say. People always tell us we like don't trust. But yeah, we I don't. don't I don't pretend to be. I don't. I'm happy to be me, but I also am happy to be me for like the people that I choose to be me for, and like Fair that's enough. just like I'm like a twenty eight dollar ticket is not enough for that. Sorry about it. <laughs> So or you douchey. don't need to be sorry about it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, so I, I was out there being a creative writing kind of advocate person for for refugees. I, I wasn't thinking about theater, but I was friends with Michael. And he's he's a real visionary and extremely generous. And he he made the effort to keep up with me. And so when I started my creative writing MFA at Indiana University in 2010, he gave me a call just to catch up and, and talk. And he said that he was starting to do I think it was using his life savings to start the Golden Globe Foundation, which was sort of an umbrella under which he could do um, theater workshops in the world's, at the time, largest refugee camp, um, which was at the Kenya-Somalia border, mm. the Dob. And you need state clearance to go there as an American. Okay. That's how dangerous it is. And you are required to take a week of R&R every six weeks, or you were at the time. That's how difficult it was to be there and to work wow. there. And that's how, how difficult it was to keep up the morale in, the, in mm -hmm. the volunteers who were going. Now, I am not super up on my world nation's history. Tell me why. I mean, I, I understand. I understand conceptually that it's a dangerous place to be. But tell me why it's so dangerous. Like what exactly was going on or is still going on that makes it that gnarly of a place to be? A whole lot of civil strife. Okay. And a lot of a migrant crisis that, that's coming out of global warming. And oh. the fact that people in, in the Horn of Africa and in certain countries there cannot grow what they need to grow to survive. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a climate factor and there's also civil strife and disagreements between different groups and different ethnic groups. Gotcha. I actually don't know more than that. Okay. And I didn't when I went to Kenya. Basically, Michael called me to catch up and he told me about this plan. And I said, Michael, I'm in, I'm in school again. I can probably find a, a little summer grant for a couple thousand bucks to at least help with airfare to get out there. Like, what can I do for you if, if I could come out there for the summer? And he said immediately, girls, because I am a man and I can't create the same space that you can. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to work with women because they've suffered a specific set of traumas. Mm -hmm. And so um, it really was that early. You know, I was in Indiana for the first time. I was dealing with Midwest and, and, the, and the winter in the Midwest for the first time. And I already kind of had the goal in my mind that I was going to get out to Kenya and work with women there. Um, specifically, Michael said, it's going to be hard to get you up into Dadaab. Why don't you um, plan on working with refugee agencies in Nairobi? Because you won't be here for very long. And do, and I remember on the phone, I said, do what? And he said, well, do, do what you do, do creative writing. So I initially was going to go there to do a creative writing workshop with refugee ladies. And I didn't know how old they would be, and I didn't know how many there would be, and I wasn't sure of very much. I just showed up. And that's why I think the earlier experiences abroad were important to this, because I, I sort of had faith that if you know what your values are and you know what your skill set is, you can show up in a place and observe and try not to step on too many toes and, and figure where you can offer something. And the local refugee agencies identified um, a, a few ladies, I think there were four at our first meeting, who were interested um, specifically in a girls-only group, because mm -hmm. most of the groups were co-ed. They had not really heard about a girls-only group. So we started getting together two or three times a week, and it, it quickly became clear that these were not, um, that creative writing was not the most empowering way to engage mm -hmm. with these women. They wanted to do drama. And um, happily for us all, me especially, <laughs> they said, can we do drama? And I said, of course, Any, anything that would help. This space is just for me to hold because my, my being a, a white Westerner in the world is what's keeping the reservation of this room in this Catholic church compound open for these two hours for you, rather closed to other people. But whatever you want to do in this room, I support, you know. And so they started creating little pieces of drama based on their experiences. And what's amazing is that they responded to this idea of safe space and the circle check-in that we would do, which I lifted straight out of um, when I was an undergrad at Brown. We, we did the female sexuality workshop. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the piece about the pubic hair came out of out of that experience, right? I worked as a figure model, and so I wrote a little piece about it for my female sexuality workshop in the spring of 2005. And little did I know <laughs> that I would do the nags and brags circle check-in exercise where you just kind of focus on one person at a time around the circle, and they would say things that were awesome and things that were hard about that day. And um, lucky for me, a lot of it was just luck. Um, it, it worked. They, they cottoned to it also and, and were interested in in the kind of space it created with only women who went around in a circle at the top of our time together and started to tell stories about their day and about their lives. And about two weeks in, one of the girls came with a personal story, and I remember still that she she looked at the floor, and she had brought it in in writing, and she read from her paper, and she said that she had been violated, that she had been subjected to gender-based violence, which is a huge taboo to break. She was so brave that day. There's a lot of stigma around being a rape victim mm. in the cultures that these young women were from. All four of them were from Congo, and all four of them had suffered similar gender-based violence. And this one young woman decided to respond to this idea of safe space um, by, by bringing what had actually happened. And then, and then we went through the dramatic process of creating a piece about a character. And I said, okay, so let's think of a girl and give her a home. Where's she from? Say Congo. How old is she? You know, wh what's her family like? What happens to her? And as they answered these questions, they started to create scenes. And it was extraordinary to watch how good these young women were at, at impersonating the guards who tried to keep them out of certain places, mm. at impersonating the truck drivers who would give them the ride through Burundi or through Rwanda to get to Nairobi. Everybody wants to get to Nairobi because the UNHCR their process is a whole lot of, of the refugees from that part of the world. The United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees. Mm -hmm. When you read about Angelina Jolie doing stuff, she's doing stuff as, as an ambassador for them. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of how that started. What was the question? <laughs> so, no, no, you're doing I'm great. I'm really you're into doing them. Great. You're doing great. We're They're amazing <laughs> women. I could talk about them so all day. So what, well, tell me about their ages, their experiences, like who, because right now I'm just thinking of them as women. I want to know like mm -hmm. how old they are. Anywhere from 13 to 33. Okay. Okay. So these are young women. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them actually, they didn't tell me at the time. This is how clueless I was. I didn't know they were from um, groups or tribes that didn't always get along. But they told me later that they would not necessarily have socialized mm. back in their in their home country, but because they had become part of this strange, rootless, choiceless nation of, of being labeled as a refugee, therefore sort of a lower class citizen in Nairobi society, they were able to to cross those lines of difference and bond. And and it actually sustained itself in practice for the next six years. Wow. I was out there for six weeks, I think, seven weeks, just for one performance on World Refugee Day 2011. And they just kept going. Mm -hmm. And they kept winning contracts from local refugee agencies to do theater work about AIDS or the importance of education for girls. And I was blown away um, because I had done enough in, in sort of the international development sector over time and, and in these different, you know, on like four different continents. I, I knew how rare it was for any project to be self-sustaining. And I didn't, um, like I would never say that it was me because it wasn't. It was something about what the girls did with this space once they realized they felt safe mm -hmm. um, to, to sort of detect what it was they needed to heal and what it was they wanted to do to progress. Because one of them became chair lady, one of them became treasurer, mm. like they just ran with it. And they became this known entity in Nairobi's refugee community. And even though most of them have been resettled now, mm -hmm. the chair lady, chair lady currently, excuse me, is in Ottawa. There's another one who's in Quebec. Um, I think the person who used to be treasurer is like in Australia now, you know, so there was some turnover. But what's extraordinary is that these girls remain in contact. And on International Women's Day this year in 2018, I, I woke up to these amazing Facebook group text messages wow. where, where um, one, of, one of the ladies who is currently in Washington, D.C., actually, I'm going to get to see her soon, which I'm really excited oh, about. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she married a Rwandan guy who resettled there, and now she's able to be with him. It, it took like two or three years wow. where she wasn't with her husband, but she's out here now. And, and so she messaged us all and just thanked us and was thinking of us. And so whatever it is, is still there. Yeah. And hopefully the, the younger or more junior sort of members, the members who joined later after I was there, last time I was there with the Survival Girls was 2013. Mm -hmm. 
um, hopefully they'll they'll keep some semblance of it going in in the community in Nairobi. But what's most amazing to me is that whatever it is is still, you know, in the hearts and the lives um, of these um, amazing young women who are literally all over the world now. You know, mm-hmm. they've they've almost all been resettled from the original group, and they still think of each other and they still have this relationship. It's extraordinary, and it's theater that did that. You know, it was a theater workshop that did that. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. That's such an interesting story. So do you think it's like when you went in there with this, like we're going to do some creative writing and and they pivoted towards theater, was it that they wanted to write in dialogue form or did they want to get on their feet and act? I mean, like what, what did it, what was more forward or more mm-hmm. first? They had all come from a group that was like, I think it had 40 or 50 members and that was co-ed and that was a performance group. Okay. So these were already women who had a, a bent toward creative performance, but also a lot of them weren't comfortable with writing. It wasn't something they knew how to do or do well. It wasn't something they turned to when they felt alone. You know, it wasn't their journal. Right. They needed to sing. They needed to cry. They needed to, you know, more have a more embodied approach to their own narratives in their own lives and their own struggle. And I think that's where, for me, the fascination with theater began because it was doing something that nothing else could do. And furthermore, it was something that the girls knew they needed to do. It was almost as though they had the remedy within within, and and started from there. And and the way that the workshop was important was not, was not that it was creative writing because it, it turned out that that's not exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to make a play, mm-hmm. but... I don't even know if we ever wrote the script. I think finally the chair lady, the, the self-designated chair lady did um, in, in English and Swahili both, you know, sort of switching from one to the other. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of the script I, I could never vet because I never learned Swahili very well. Yeah. And they spoke a Congolese dialect of Swahili, furthermore, you know, so wow. <laughs> the whole thing. I remember one day they said, Ming, would you correct us? And I said, what? Mm. <laughs> Do you mean direct you? And they're like, yes, yeah, that. You know, correct our errors is how they put uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. I said, well, I, I don't think you're making any, <laughs> but I can let you know, you know, I can remind you to turn towards the audience, try not to show your back to the audience too often. Um, if you use this gesture as the good Samaritan who's helping the refugee character, why don't you can make that gesture even bigger and maybe cradle her hands in your, you know, her face in your hands rather Little things like that. I, I didn't. I didn't make too many huge adjustments, but they wanted to have somebody uh, watching and reflecting back to them. And it was yeah. almost better for a couple reasons that I didn't know everything about what they were saying. Mm-hmm. It meant that the story was theirs, and the invention was theirs, and the project was theirs. Um, and it also meant that I could respond in a really honest way to what was working from a dramatic standpoint. Because hopefully, if, if you're a skilled enough actor, if the story you're telling is clear enough that you're telling through your body, you don't need to know each of the words in the dialogue to have a sense of what's being said. So it was actually empowering for them and also specified for me as like a newbie to theater, like what it is about theater that's so extraordinary, which is that you don't ever, hopefully, need to know exactly what the actor says. And for them embodying and telling the story of what had happened to them. You know, we're talking about gender-based violence. We're talking about people being barred from going to school, people dealing with, with sex work and with AIDS and all, all of the issues that are relevant to the refugee community there. And they're doing it in, in ways that are so universally accessible that even if the, the audience is a bunch of people from Rwanda, Burundi, places with different languages, different cultures, they were still able to follow and emotionally identify with the story. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, theater, this know? is a magical thing. Yeah, it's magic. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of Lynn Nottage's transformation from mm-hmm. being a uh, amnesty worker mm. to going into theater. Interesting. She made, she made a very similar... Actually, she was from Brown also. I know that you studied I have recently learned this about Lynn Nottage. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. And uh, I was thinking about Lynn Nottage as you were talking because... I remember in her life story, her high school counselor said, well, you can't, you can't go to Brown, you know, they're not going to, even though she was brilliant and she had the grades and all that. And when the teacher told her or the counselor said, no, that's not happening. She, that, you know, that focused her determination on like, I'm going to Brown. So she only applied to Brown. 
Wow. That was the only school she applied to. <sighs> That's, That's an excellent anecdote. I didn't know that about yeah. her. That's yeah, a but I think, I think yeah, it's interesting how, um, yeah, we, we can kind of see how theater, you know, theater sometimes divides on who thinks it's a political mm, mm-hmm. agent and who thinks it's absolutely not a political agent. You know, think people who think hashtag David it. Mamet lies. <laughs> hashtag David Mamet is a big fat liar. <laughs> no comment. And uh, so, you know, who, you know, how did you see people uh, shifting their perspective based on encountering this theater. I mean, because it, it's one thing to execute the drama, to right. make the drama. To that's put it healing. on, to put it on its face. To, to yeah, be, to, yeah, to write it, to author it, to act it can be healing and all that. Mm-hmm. But the people who are seeing it, does that, did you feel like that increased their empathy or, or broke down some of those barriers about their prejudice for it's rape a, victims and, and people of assault. Really excellent question. Um, because I have I have two poles of of witnessing this, and one is at World Refugee Day in 2011, where the Survival Girls as a group had actually gotten through the auditions to perform at World Refugee Day's official ceremony, right? At University of Nairobi, it was so exciting, and they had made the auditors cry, and it was really tremendous. And then the actual performance, we were close to to the last of the bill. And um, nobody was really paying attention and other people were using other mics elsewhere and and nobody could really hear them. And and it was Mm. this, they didn't get the attention in the limelight that they deserved. And it was heartbreaking because the piece was really moving and really good and very theatrical in a lot of ways. They had really wonderful instincts. Um, And I knew that they deserved more of a platform. And I remember that that day I looked over because Michael Liddick himself was there. He had been doing, he, he was there with a, with a performance from Dadaab that got a lot of fanfare as well. It should have it was an extraordinary piece. Um, and then we were shuffled, you know, like 17th or 13th or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking over at him and he was just shaking his head because he was so upset that these women were not getting their due and they, and they weren't being heard and listened to the way that we had hoped they would be that day. And so fast forward to 2013 and some of it's about picking your audience and some of it, you know, is, is about rolling with the situation. And I remember that I had heard about Hesha Makenya, which is a local NGO that works with refugee ladies. And um, and so the, the audience was, was going specifically to be refugee women from Burundi, Congo, Rwanda, Somalia. Um, and that was a remarkably different effect. Mm. Instead of being ignored, um, you could have heard a pin drop after this performance, which wow. was specifically about the the journey of one refugee lady who is violated and sees her mother violated and loses her family to um, these Congolese rebel soldiers who were all played by the girls, by the way. That's another really interesting thing about this group mm-hmm. is that it's all mm-hmm. women, so they're playing all the guy parts. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. And some of the guys are, the, are, are characters like the people who did terrible things to them. Yeah, they're the villains. So yeah. they're playing... They're the playing, perpetrators. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Which is, I, I will think about that for the rest of my life. Honestly, yeah. it's an extraordinary thing to witness. And so they told the story so well that by the end at this NGO with about 50 people in the audience who were almost all women from these, these countries, um, and suddenly one of them started to cry. And then they all started to cry. And I had actually come to Heshima, Kenya before the performance to talk to the counselors there and say, at that point, I had learned enough about trauma to say some people might be triggered by this. Mm-hmm. They might be re-traumatized by the subject matter. And I wanted to be really clear with you about mm-hmm. what happens in this piece and ask whether there's any prep we need to do, any editing we need to do, you know. And yeah. um, and the counselor there just was very well-meaning. And she said, you know, the ones who react are the ones that we know need help because we don't know yet which ones need help. They don't want to tell us because it's such a stigma. Wow. But it was a real gamble and, and, and created some real sort of ethical gray areas. Yeah. Like, do we want to re-traumatize 50 people all at once who are not expecting it just so that we know which ones to give care to? There's something really paternal and questionable about that. And I continue to wrestle with it. But I also know that that day, um, while the counselors themselves were surprised by it, 
I, I wasn't as surprised. And so when they said, you, what are we going to do? They're all crying. I said, well, we need to yeah, care all, for them. Yeah, they all need help. <laughs> we need to do some counseling, you know. And she said, well, what if we do group counseling with the, with the girls too? And that was the part that I didn't expect. I expected that I might be asked to lead some smaller circles and, and focus more on each of the audience members. Uh, but I didn't know that the women in the Survival Girls group themselves would be asked on the spot after mm. doing this performance to counsel their peers, essentially. Mm, wow. So there was a whole lot that could have gone way more wrong. Yeah. Um, but we were just really lucky because Hashimah Kenya specifically is um, a, an NGO that, that I can't even describe it. It's like Eden. It's like this garden. It's this house that is kind of like a hobbit house. It has several stories, and there are women learning to weave and learning to do printmaking and learning to do these different skills that are valuable, um, and and learning to make clothes and and so they're just they're staying in this house with a lot of caring female counselors and trees all around and a big yard in the back. So we sat in a big circle, like sixty people, in that backyard. And we started to talk a little bit, and then we, we broke down into smaller groups. And I was so incredibly proud and inspired by the women in the Survival Girls group because they each led a section, right? They each led a little circle. All sorts of therapists would be like, oh, my God, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is horrendous, you know? Like, people need training, people need prep, people need all this, and, and yeah. they would be right. But what, what's extraordinary about these women and the work that they're doing is that they managed to prevail even in spite of those sorts of odds. Well, I think the idea, too, that like like a Western therapist in a non-trauma environment would say that isn't going to work, and they would be right, fine. But I think that, and just like you're saying, like the, the way that the counseling was working, the way that, that drama was working and affecting people is totally different than what we do here in Santa Barbara. Right. Right, like we do theater and we hope that it affects somebody and it's great for us because Reaches it's an someone, art make form somebody feel something. make you feel something yeah. anything is great yeah. but like you know and then we go to therapy and it's sort of a luxury item because you know we want to talk about our day and like we need somebody to reflect <laughs> with but like that's a completely like that is an absolutely privileged point of view mm-hmm. in comparison to a group of people who have been really systematically traumatized Mm -hmm. and they're trying to get through it and they don't have the sort of, you know, resources that we have and they don't have the support system that we have. So I don't know that it is wrong that they did that. I mean, I think that the, if the option is that or nothing, then I think that the option that they went with is, is spectacular. Well, that's so interesting, Maggie, because I can see an argument for, you know, first do no harm, like, sure. Don't, re reenact the trauma but if but if what what first has to happen is that people just need to acknowledge that these things are happening Mm -hmm. and that it isn't degrading you as a human being that it happened to you Mm -hmm. um maybe maybe it's all for the best i yeah yeah, i mean it sounds really empowered like it was empowering yeah it sounds like it turned out really positive yeah I think so. I, th- I think the women wouldn't keep in touch with each other if not. Yeah. And, the, and the counselors at Heshima Kenya, I remember at the end of that day, said, we have a list of the women who responded the most strongly, and now mm. we, need, we know that we need to prioritize their therapeutic care because we didn't know who, ha- who was carrying the most trauma with them. They don't tell us. Yeah. But, but now we know, you know, and, and while that's, I'm sure that there's a critique of that that would be valid. I'm still glad that yeah. we did that instead yeah. of not yeah. doing that. A lot of that has to do with Hesha McKenna, though, and in sort of the context of the having a peaceful space. yard where a lot of women could come together literally in a circle and help each other through you the You know feelings. what would be enlightened is if in the world we started everyone in those spaces <laughs> rather than waiting for everyone to get For them to be damaged right, and, then, and then give them a safe space. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. like yeah. allow people to... If we start with paradise and stay there yeah. instead. Yeah. We do live in Santa Barbara. Well, you know, if we didn't have women offering the apple all the time, then, <laughs> then this wouldn't yeah. be an issue, Anna. Extraordinary, though. It's cool to see, to, to see theater, like, I don't know, resist that trope in such an embodied way and say, this has been used to reify a whole bunch of of narrative tropes that we don't need anymore about women and how helpless they are and, you yeah. know, like... 
Stella and all that stuff, <laughs> right? And her negligee. I mean, that's got its place. But there are other <laughs> things that drama can do, right? Other things that theater can do. Yes. Um, yeah. And specifically, it's a question of agency also. The, mm-hmm. These were young women who were not always paid to do what they had done. They weren't always sure that they would have a venue. And they still wanted to get together and tell the story. They still wanted to write the script for themselves. They still wanted to decide what happens to this girl and share their stories. And they mm-hmm. wanted specifically the ones who played the men wanted to play them so that the story could be told correctly. Mm. And there is Oof. a really powerful statement about, about agency in there yeah, definitely. and about trauma recovery through being the one to decide that, yeah, this was done to me. It happened. I'm not going to allow that stigma to keep me from reenacting this in a way that I know is right because I lived through it. And I'm going to be that guy for these few seconds. And honestly, the women who... Um, who enacted those soldiers got a lot of, specifically at the Hesham Kenya performance, you know, with a bunch of trauma victims who'd lived through something similar. They, they literally were like, I got to hand it to her. She, she really nailed the mannerisms of these Ooh. rebel soldiers, right? So it's in there. The knowledge is in there. And the agency is in there. And I don't believe that, that the recovery process was completed when they did that. But yes. I think it was part of a recovery process that will take years and years and years. And you got it's a little a bit, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you got a little bit of of pushback uh, surrounding this this because people were That's saying a diplom- diplomatic way of putting it. I, th- I think it was you're using refugees to further your career, and it yeah. sickens me. I think that that was my favorite <laughs> Facebook comment. <laughs> well, I love that it's a Facebook comment too. It's not. Right? It's not somebody being like, "Hey, to your face, I have a problem." It's somebody you being know, like, "I'm going to hide behind like this policing. screen." Yeah. But yeah, maybe it I was mean, a Russian. Maybe it was a psyop. It was a bot. Active yeah, measure. it was a bot. It was fine. You know, nobody actually thinks <laughs> that. That was an algorithm talking. But it sounds like you facilitated the space for these women to really present something that, and I think the way that it is described in, in your work, mm. especially like there were some moments that I was like, this could never be pulled off on an on a Santa Barbara stage. Like, I mean, no, no, no. Tell I mean, me so, yeah. no, no. So there's, there's one point in which they're, you know, they're dragging a woman, the soldiers, these girl playing, the soldiers are dragging a woman off. And the inference is that they're dragging her off to rape her off stage. And she's screaming. And then they take her off stage and there's a screaming off stage. And then they come back on and it's, it's, and I mean, I, I'm just, I was thinking about that and I was like, there's no, it's too real. It's, it's too, too. It's just too. Like I can't imagine a play in which people would drag off a woman and there's this screaming and you're just listening to her being raped off stage. Well, you like, saw Ghetto, right? Well, and yeah, and it was bad. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's it, okay. You can say that. It was, but my character <laughs> was violated on stage by Pachomio's son's character. Right. That's how Pachomio's son and I. Hi, Pachomio. Hi, Pachomio. Got to know each other. We love you. <laughs> and we, ha- we had to somehow, we had to dramatize the rape on stage. It was over in the corner. Yeah. But it's in the script that Joshua Sobel wrote is, is, that, is that Rika is raped in a, cor- in a corner somewhere. So we, it was left open how to portray that. No, and, we and I remember it being very horrifying. And I remember being like, this was a choice. Like, <laughs> wow. It was but, a choice with a capital C, but right? But it's like yeah. when you're reading memoir, when you're reading memoir or, or you know, seeing a play that is based on the real story right it's so much different because it's like yeah. this this happened yeah so when someone gets dragged off stage it has that much more punch it has it it's it's right maybe yeah. aristotle would say a little too close to reality well aristotle wouldn't know i don't think aristotle ever had to deal with what these women had to deal with and he didn't use drama the way they use drama <laughs> But anyway, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I agree. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. No, it packed much more of a punch uh, when the girls did it, for sure. Definitely. Or, or it's a, it's almost like a completely different type of drama. Like it, it maybe, yep. Maybe that's what you're saying, Maggie. Is yeah, like, yeah. We just don't even have that kind of drama. No, because we don't. Um, we we don't. Well, we don't have that kind of trauma. We do. Well, we do, but, we but it's in a different. It's in a different sort of context. It is, and and then we wouldn't have the people. We don't have the audience in a way for it. Like, like we right. don't have. We're not serving the the audience that would right. Right. Well right. 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 With that. Right. I mean, because where in this 
I mean, where in, right. in the American public is there that audience that is going to be affected in, mm-hmm. at first, a triggering way, but then, I mean, you find that in, like, a rehab center. You don't just find that in, like, oh, well, we're going to sell tickets and people are going to yeah. come, right? Like, you that's a specific piece that is made specifically for a, an audience that is gathered for yeah. that reason. It's not right. it's not general theater. It's right. I mm-hmm. think that we would call that therapeutic theater. Or we would or call theater that. of the oppressed or social yeah. justice right, right, theater. Right, right, it's right. not Something the same like as high art theater. And there's this sort of bifurcation that might not actually need to be real. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. Or, or almost like you're taking the theater away from it. Like it's not a reenact. Like it's not an imitation of mm-hmm. an action, but it's 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 a recreation of an action. You know, mm-hmm. rather than uh, so. Hmm. But I don't know. Again, I'm I'm drawn to that pivot of like what when does it shift? Like when is the big shift happening mm-hmm. between? ritual you know mm. or ritual reenactment mm-hmm. and uh representation mm-hmm. i think maybe it's it's kind of our job as people who are necessarily not that we are not trauma we're women there's trauma to our lives mm-hmm. um but but an, a sort of um a comfort with a discomfort right but like we have to be in the liminal space where we don't get to ultimately make that call like we make the space and then they'll go ahead and make the art that does or doesn't challenge certain things that we think are true mm-hmm. about what drama does for people mm-hmm. and when things become ritual as opposed to reenactment as opposed to something else. Yeah, Giving up that power has been really important to the process for me. Mm. And trying to be a scholar about it has been really hard too, right. trying to trying to narrativize it later as, as a creative writer. Because yeah. the things that I choose, the things that I notice are both sort of consciously selected and, and subjectively kind of determined also by a lot of cultural bias. So Maybe they notice different things, right, than I did about the process. They obviously do. I mean, it's unavoidable, right? But that doesn't make it invalid or Yeah, I think it has its secondary. place. Yeah. yeah. And and that um, there's there's sort of a larger sort of women's movement that I thought about a lot when mm. I got that pushback that that Maggie asked me about. Why is it that I do this? Is there a way both to deal with the fact that I'm $113,000 in debt because I've been in grad school and and school, school, school forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to do rewarding things to pay off that debt rather than than spend 40 years paying off the debt doing something I'm not rewarded by. But what that means is capitalizing on my stories, on my memories, on Mm -hmm. sharing what I have to share with the world, which is necessarily very limited. Right. And, and, and easily critiqued. It's, it's really easy to critique a, an aspiring white ally. Right. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's important to try for. And that's mainly because of what I heard from the refugees themselves, specifically the woman who um, chose yeah. the pseudonym Diane in the book. And I go to visit her um, in Quebec and, and I asked her about that. That was right after I'd gotten a lot of pushback for using refugees to further my career. And I still remember that she goes, what you have to say to these people is thank you for your advices, but <laughs> it was great. She was so, you know, she had this kind of like Rihanna or Mariah Carey-esque, like, I don't know her. And I hadn't given myself permission to yeah. do that with right. these naysayers. I thought well, I have to have, listen to you, them, right? You, that that just makes you more humane, that you listen to it yeah. and work through it. Yeah, but at some point I have to be like, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here well, to empower these women, but but everybody right. besides them is not a friend, and their opinion is not as important as well, these women's. You know, that <laughs> might be a valid sy- systemic critique, right? But it's mm. not a valid critique of you. I yeah, that's absolutely. I am me. I can't tell the difference. Right, exactly. You guys have to tell you me. No, like, no, I think like that's true. The the way you know colonialism is working. This is how things are. And yeah, this I is mean, where we're at. You could say that about any white person yeah. in any point of the world at any time doing anything, even exactly. like even the poorest, like most put upon, like a homeless heroin addict in Seattle, you could still make yeah. the critique yeah. that they are using privilege. privilege to, you know, whatever. I mean, so, and I mean, it's not, but it's from what I read in my critique of your <laughs> writing of this, <laughs> which is more <laughs> as important. a reader, no, is that you were not writing their experience you were writing about how their experience affected you mm-hmm. as the author which is not using refugees right. to sell something i mean that's you saying that like i had this experience this is how their experience affected me as the outsider that was the goal 
for sure. Yeah. Because yeah. I believe strongly that a lot of these people are going to be able to tell their own stories on their own terms. But sure. in the interim, that it's important to go ahead and say, this is what it was like to meet them. This is what they told me about their experience. And this is what I noticed about their lives now. Uh-huh. There's and a place they for are that. telling their own story. They're telling their story through theater. Like they are. They did. Right. They, yeah. they continue. So tell me about Jacqueline and the negative imagination, because that's in that's a specifically in the book that is connected to this. Well, actually, it's exactly what we just talked about. Okay, it's great. specifically about um, Jacqueline is the pseudonym of the woman who chose to. Uh, it, it was her story that they based that particular performance on, the one at Hesha that had such a profound effect on the audience. Um, she was the one to play the rebel soldier mm-hmm. who had done these horrible things to her and her family, mm-hmm. really unspeakable acts of violence. And um, I wondered still for years, right, five years later, I'm sitting here wondering what that was for her, what it did. And while most of the original group of the survival girls from 2011 felt close enough with me to maintain contact with me through Facebook and other means when they were resettled, not all of the newer ones did because they didn't have the same amount of time with them. I was out in Nairobi for three or four weeks in um, 2013. And that's the last I've only been there, you know, two or three times. And that was the last time It was right before I started the UCSB PhD program. So Ming, how has these experiences, how have they informed this connection you have between writing first person and being a theater practitioner and scholar? Well, I guess specifically the experience we've been talking about is the connection. It seemed like at the end of the summer of 2011, I was, I had done one year of a creative writing MFA in the Midwest. I finished that. I got the terminal degree in creative writing, but it was very clear to me by the end of those three years Um, even by the end of that first summer in Nairobi, that I had hit on something really important because um, the the girls kept in touch with me and would tell me, we're keeping meeting, we have a chair lady, we have a treasurer, we have a contract, we have a costume budget. And I just thought, okay, I'm getting an arts degree right now, but I have a foot in the international development sector and I know how rare this is. And if we hit on something, something that has created that self-sustaining um, goal that a lot of people go for yeah. but can't achieve. What is it that did that? And I came to the conclusion roughly that it was the safe space idea, that it was checking in with each other, having a room where we all knew that that we had agreed on some rules. You know, there's a really great pedagogy program, not just at Brown through the Female Sexuality Workshop, but at IU through its Creative Writing Pedagogy Workshop, which is headed up by um, Romaine Rubinus Dorsey. And she had a really wonderful set of values. And, and she walked us through how to create safe space in our classrooms so that 18-year-olds from Indiana could write poems about their lives and their family and feel comfortable doing so, feel like, okay, we've all agreed on day one that nothing that happens inside a workshop comes out of workshop yeah. unless we decide it's going to be in a poem or be in a play. Hmm. So I took that straight to Kenya. I took that straight into the room with the girls. And it's how far they ran with it that really showed me how durable this and how portable this yeah. interpersonal phenomenon of safe space is that the safe space sort of social justice warriors that are made fun of are made fun of because what they're going for is hard it asks for vulnerability but the reason that there are enough of them so that there's a cliche about them to joke about is that it actually can work under the right circumstances when it comes to a lot of traumatized women who are in a small group together who are given a space to connect maybe it does actually do something and I couldn't deny that it had done something, that, that by the end of our process together, these women had come into their bodies a little more, and so had I, you know, because I'm a woman in the world and often will sort of space out and dissociate and try to disconnect from a situation if I find it stressful. I had also arrived in the room a little better by the end of those weeks. I knew that they had because they told me that they had, and then they told me that they were friends, that they hadn't been friends before, but they were now. And my classes at UCSB... Um, it doesn't really matter what class it is. By the end of the class, I'll be getting group shots from my students of 13 out of the 18 of them hanging out because now they're friends because they didn't have friends in each other when they started. But 10 weeks later, they have a group of friends. Mm -hmm. So something about it is real. There's a reason so many people keep returning to theater for something they don't Mm -hmm. get anywhere else. And I think kind of what I'm trying to address as a memoirist is, is saying, I come from a creative writing background But the connection that I noticed here between well-being and community building and progressive social movements and what people do in a theater workshop 
is too huge and the neon blinking sign, you know, I have to address this. I have to think more about it. I have to write more about it. I have to think about why it worked the way that it did because these were four to eight young women. There are so many other young women who have been subject to gender-based violence in other contexts and in other societies. There are so many other young people who have felt silenced. There are so many people living with oppression. So the idea that there's something, something to work toward, a tool that seems to have worked, I, I really wanted to spend time isolating exactly what worked and why. Because, and this is part of, of one, one of the girls, especially um, in, in the Facebook group chat, I think in the first year after 2011, um, I, I got an invitation. No, this is 2013, because the US, uh, the State Department invited me to go to Suriname and do like a foreign exchange kind of, um, I think it's called a, a public speaking engagement. So they brought mm. me down there for a week to talk about both creative writing and theater as tools for social change and trauma recovery. Yeah. And so I, I, I have a, a, the government photographer gave me some photos of me giving a slideshow of the girls, of the survival girls, to these people from Suriname. And so I put it up and made sure to tag um, the women in question who were on social media. And um, one of them wrote uh, something about having a candle and using the candle to light these other mm, candles. Wow. And instead of saying, how dare you mediate? And I don't understand. These, these people don't know us. They're from another culture. Instead, she said, oh, good, maybe more people will get yeah. what we got, will right. we'll find what we found. And that's what I keep trying to remember when I experience that pushback, because it can feel really personal and yeah. it can hurt. Sure. I do want to get it right. And I do know that no ally does a perfect job because it's not going to be perfect until there's not a need for allies. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a really tremendous idea that there are women all around the world who are lighting each other's candles. And that beyond that, there are, there are suffering or oppressed people around the world who are lighting each other's candles. You know, that was the same girl who, after week two in the very original workshop, came with her very own story of yeah. being violated and changed the whole thing. You know, they're all that brave. They're all that resilient and that brilliant. It's incredible. It's an incredible story. And it's it it's a beautiful book. And I'm I'm so Thank I'm you. so happy that it's coming out for the general public. Yeah. So get your copy of Refuge. Corey Press, K-O-R-E, June 25th. Also, I'm going to try and do one of those um, cute little readings at Chaucer's. Oh, great. Good, good, good. Absolutely. You should. You absolutely should. Absolutely. End of June, beginning of July. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And we're excited to, to have you here to we talk about delighted it. delighted to have you here. And we Thank are excited to continue to see you on Santa Barbara stages. So fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ta-da! Thanks for listening. And thanks to Ming for joining us. Um, catch us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the places where you get your podcasts. And our special thanks to David Paris, our producer, and Miles Halston for the music. See you.